I do not see how a situation where Raj is going to be managing Ireland before Paulie. Paul's next. In my eyes, what's coming down the line, I would suggest that Raj might have to hold on. Subscribe to the Rugby Stream on the OTB Sports app now. Now you're welcome along Sunday Papers so very happy to say live in studio we are joined by Shane Keegan of Cove Ramblers amongst uh, other things and Keen Tracy of the Irish Independent Gents you're both very welcome good to have you with us Cheers Joe Cheers Joe So I'll run you through uh, what is dominating on the sports section so we have pictures of Munster to beat the band as you might imagine it's been a long wait for them so Magical Munster Hodna Tri Secures United Rugby Championship crown for men in red in Cape Town final that's the Sunday Times Munster 19 points to 14 winners and then interesting uh, story bottom of the Sunday Times then Duncan Castle's here so Barcelona want to sign Bruno Gamirage of Newcastle and they are willing to pay about £87 million sterling to get him over to Barcelona. He would have signed, obviously, from Lyon in January of last year for £40 million. He has been outstanding and it's caught the attention of Barcelona and PSG. So Newcastle are going to offer him a load of wedge to stay, is the reporting, an improved deal to say at St. James's Park. However, the funny thing with Newcastle, it does seem as if uh, financial fair play is being enforced at a time when they don't want it to be enforced. So Newcastle, they declared revenues of 180 million for the financial year just gone last year. That was the first under uh, Saudi Arabia ownership. Uh, Turnover is expected to increase from that 180 million to 350 million next season with Champions League and some new sponsorship deals, including Saudi Arabian uh, sponsor of their uh, Jersey, but if you think 350 million sounds like a lot of revenue, Man City's uh, revenue is 613 million. So Newcastle, despite having endless money in the guise of the PIF, can't spend it the way they might like. So keeping Gamirage mightn't be as simple as just saying throw him whatever he wants. They are limited um, by what they can spend, and there's even some sense in the piece that they might look at selling Gamirage to. Uh, make the 90 million and therefore they can spend that so that's kind of an interesting story there because he's been to the fore for Newcastle this season uh, we have the Mail on Sunday it's magical Munster on the back again they end the drought 19 points to 14 uh, win and then Cusack must go we'll come to this piece this is Michael Dignan their columnist inside the Mail on Sunday and he says Donald Cusack's position as GPA president is now quote untenable in the wake of what he said about the Talshin Cup we have the Sun then uh, I mean, this was a relief for all concerned. If you if you saw the game yesterday, the playoff, championship playoff for the Premier League spot, Luton uh, won on penalties and their captain, Tom Lockyer, uh, stumbled and fell over and then tried to get up and fell back to the ground in a way that just spells something very, very serious. And this was just six minutes into the game uh, yesterday. So it was wonderful when his father, uh, Steve, put a photo on Twitter of his son celebrating the penalty win, surrounded by family. Uh, looks to have some kind of monitors on his uh, chest, as you might imagine, but he's um, in the full of his health, it would appear, and uh, cheering on the team as they won. So um, that could have been the most awful situation for Luton. In the end, it turns out to have been a dream day. So we'll see them in the Premier League next year. And they also have um, the headline, Red Emption, as in Mon- the Red and Munster redeemed. Sunday World, perfect 10, picture Harry Kane. Eric Ten Hag has uh, secured apparently bumper transfer kitty after leading uh, Manchester United back into the Champions League. His top target is Harry Kane. And then Sunday Mirror show a picture, glass from the past. These were halcyon days, 2003. And it's Big Sam dancing with JJ Okocha on the pitch after they uh, survived 
uh, relegation at Bolton that is and so he said he'll do a similar dance with the Leeds players if they survive today it is very much in Everton's hands against Bournemouth but uh, Leeds and Leicester waiting to pounce the Observer go with Luton yesterday uh, mad for it Hatters Luton Town promoted to Premier League after a dramatic 6-5 shootout defeat of Coventry and then Sunday Independent the scenes at full time when Munster win in Cape Town Munster Marvels Mighty Reds end their 12 year drought with victory in Cape Town so seeing as Munster are everywhere keen you can get the ball rolling on this I would think uh, start of the season abysmal midway through the season Champions Cup looked to be in major doubt Leinster freewheeling and glorious if we'd um, press pause somewhere mid-season even maybe a month and a half ago and, and said this is how it's all going to play out fellas we might have been a touch surprised but um, Munster have not just plucked their season from the fire and, and turned it into satisfactory it's now uh, the beginning of something uh, I'm sure in their eyes hopefully something very special yeah, the most successful Irish province over the last two years. You would have got some odds on that a couple of months ago, Joe. Um, it was a remarkable win. Um, in It had all the hallmarks of a classic Munster story. Um, doing it the hard way in terms of going to South Africa. You had a couple of thousand Munster hardy souls who made the expensive trip and my God, like you just have to tip your hat to, to anyone who, who forked out at such short notice to make the trip because memories of a lifetime I'm sure they had in Cave Down, the scenes over there looked unbelievable. There's talks now, Munster are going to be having a homecoming in Limerick tomorrow night uh, at Thoma Park. So you're really like kind of reliving kind of the glory days. And you're right, Joe, I think that's the biggest thing to come out of this that you know, it doesn't really feel like the end point of this journey. Like this is year one of the Graham Roundtree project, year one of Dennis Leamy, uh, Mike Prendergast, Andy, Andy Kiriakou coming into the coaching staff. So it's it's absolutely brilliant for Irish rugby. It's a nice little boost on the back of Leinster losing the Champions Cup final last year. There was a lot of doom and gloom. You know, what does that mean for Ireland's World Cup prospects? Well, this is a serious shot in the arm. And like I said, it's it seems like so long ago and I know there's a piece in the I think it's Jonathan Norcraft writing about the Premier League season and bringing up all these things it's hard to believe it's the same season but if you go back to the start of Munster season it almost seems like a lifetime ago They I was having a look at it earlier Like they lost their their only two uh, friendlies that they had in Musgrave Park now of course they're only friendlies but then they went on to lose um, five of their opening seven games in the URC including like you know, away in Cardiff, away at the Dragons, like games that you just don't associate Munster losing. So I think the big turning point in the season, and I know you were there, was the game of Porky Cueve. It's been referenced so many times, but beating that South Africa select team was a real boost to the province, I think, as a whole. You could see the connection had been kind of firmly re-established because I think it had been lost, I think, over the last couple of years whether it was down to the style of rugby that was being played, younger players not quite being trusted. And that's been turned on its head now because, you know, I was writing about this yesterday for like every Peter O'Mahony, Keith Earls and Conor Murray you have in that Munster squad. You've got a Craig Casey, John Hodden and a Calvin Nash. So like they really are, this generation have written their own history. So you think back, they've had six games in a row to finish the season. They lost in the Sharks uh, to the Champions Cup. And you were kind of thinking then that, you know, that came on the back of losing at home to Glasgow the season was in free fall and not just this season it had major ramifications for next season as well in terms of um, getting Champions Cup qualification and now all of a sudden they're going to go into the Champions Cup draw as one of the number one seeds so uh, it's remarkable what they've done and they deserve full full credit like we spend a lot of time no less in here talking about Leinster like, but this is a huge huge story for Munster Rugby Yeah uh, One of those other young players Jack Crowley 
makes the headline of Peter O'Reilly's piece, for instance, in the Sunday Times, Crowley inspires Munster to first title in 12 years. So he says, uh, there were times in the opening quarter, especially that Jack Crowley seemed to be playing the game at his specially ordained pace, gliding over the heavy surface effortlessly. By the way, it is the worst pitch in world sport, but that's mm-hmm. for another day. And teasing the stormers by passing, uh, by passing the ball under their noses. And he was like so flat to the line. It was quite literally under their noses. It's a great line by Peter O'Reilly. Uh, whether running, passing or kicking from hand, his execution was almost flawless. Within the space of two weeks, he has surely reshaped the pecking order of fly halves behind Johnny Sexton. And I dare say he may well have. Uh, other points that Peter O'Reilly makes, uh, he talks about the coaching ticket. So Graham Rowntree, and, and if you didn't see the full-time scenes, the coaching box erupted, except for Rowntree, who just put his hands to his face, uh, drained, I would think, by the whole experience of the past year. Uh, Mike Prendergast uh, has developed a sophisticated attacking game. And again, Munster wouldn't have played the rugby that they played yesterday under the previous uh, coach. That is a fact. And Dennis Leamy's defence uh, has transformed from that disastrous mid-season slump where they conceded 130 points in three games. Uh, makes other points like the width that Munster put on the ball ensured that Calvin Nash, Shane Daly were in the action throughout, while the accuracy of Conor Murray's box kicks meant that they rarely turned the ball over. And when you consider the Anton Frisch intercept in the opening uh, few moments, when you consider Gavin Coombs's try was, I think, probably harshly disallowed, that Munster winning 19 points to 14, they actually really should have won that game almost comfortably. It, it, you don't win finals like that comfortably away from home, but they were just the better side. And um, Peter Riley says, the Stormers did have their purple patch, of course, and that coincided with Mike Haley's spell in the bin. But uh, he does ultimately say that Munster were very worthy winners there. A combination of tireless slog and bottomless ambition served them well. And I thought even if they had lost to Leinster and even if they had lost to the Stormers, the manner in which they're now playing is just so radically different and better than what they were producing at any stage under Van Grant. I think ultimately that is the core reason the support are back because they're recognising that this is something... uh, that they can really get their teeth into and, and like and be excited by and, and in some respects winning every game their support is not contingent on that whereas I thought the rugby under Van Graan was so turgid that it was like well this better be successful because there's very little else to say for it Yeah absolutely I think Peter used the word ambition and Munster have played with ambition all this season and that you know it hasn't always gone that well and Peter does touch on the slump that they've had and there were times where they were conceding points like there was no tomorrow and you were kind of worried about the direction they're going but there was always going to be teething problems and Mm. they kind of had like the epitome of a roller coaster season it was just so up and down but like the headline on Bernard Jackman's piece in the Sunday Independent says men in red show how to finish a season and that's really what it's all about isn't it like I touched on there Joe the start of the season was so bad but it's all about how you finish it and yeah you're right I think the the connection has been re-established I don't think any Munster supporter like the staunchest Munster supporter would have expected silverware at the end of the season I was asking Dennis Leamy about this during the week and he kind of said no it wasn't part of the the goals but as soon as they got there there was no point in kind of you know describing it as bonus territory because like guys like Keith Earls like that was his last opportunity to win another trophy with Munster and my god did they, did they take it so um, it's hugely hugely encouraging I think not only is is it the style of play Joe but I think it's the, the trust in the young players I think like the word in the street would have been over the last couple of years that 
there was like a sense of complacency in Munster that if you were an Ireland international, it, it didn't matter about your form. If you were fit, you were going to be playing. And we saw countless examples of that over the years. And you think back to the course of this season, Conor Murray's been dropped. Uh, Keith Earls has been dropped. Most recently, Joey Carberry's been totally bombed out of the squad. So Roundtree hasn't been afraid to to make big decisions and he also has strong emotional intelligence I would say I thought he hit on some really poignant points um, in his post-match interview you know he was talking about a lot of people that Munster have lost along the way and you know your thoughts would immediately turn to the likes of you know, Anthony Foley, Tom Tierney, but there's been guys like Gareth Fitzgerald, Pat Geraghty, Jerry Holland. Like there's countless guys over the years who since Munster have last won a trophy. And it was really, I thought, fitting that um, Roundtree touching that. I know I heard Peter O'Mahony in his aftermath, aftermatch speech said it in the dressing room as well. So um, there is a sense that this is, there is something special building in Munster. Again, it's been a long time coming. 12 years for a province of that size is just not good enough really but now that they have a really good uh, coaching staff I think who understand as well what Munster Rugby are about they understand the importance of homegrown players like Mike Prendergast Dennis Leamy Andy Kiriak who played for Munster and he came through the Munster Academy system Roundtree is very much from the Leicester Tigers old school and you know you can you can overplay that at times but the clubs are quite similar in their yeah. values as well so he's a real steady hand at the tiller and like I said it's a massive boost for Irish Rugby if you're looking at a bigger picture stuff one last rugby piece. Bernard Jackman, you picked this out, Shane. You're not a, a rugby man per se, but yeah. even you, even you are uh, in awe of the boy Ronan O'Gara, who has been the toast, really, of, um, I suspect, coaches and uh, supporters uh, alike over the past week or so. So Bernard Jackman's writing about O'Gara. Uh, he says, in professional sport and in elite rugby, the winner gets to write the script. No one in Irish rugby writes a script quite like Ronan O'Gara. He says La Rochelle won the final by a point but on the balance of play they deserved to win by more. His players went deep into their souls to take the game away from Leinster. What makes Ronan so special he says later on is his ability to understand people and uh, he talked about his dealings in the media as well with a certain um, uh, admiration. Even before the semi-final against Exeter I heard O'Gara saying that his team were being trained to peak for the final and they just, that they just needed to get through the semi-final. Uh, that message seeps into his own players' minds and just as importantly, the opposition. He also says, I was part of the RTE coverage last weekend and at our pre-production meeting on Friday, the producer told us that Ronan wanted to come and chat to the panel pitch side before the match, which is nearly unheard of. And trust me, it really is. Uh, You're generally begging coaches to come and talk uh, pitch side. So it is pretty much unheard of. And... Jackman says we were located at the corner of the pitch where Michael Alatoa was red carded that's also the end of the pitch where Leinster warm up players notice things in warm up uh, I've no doubt that some of them would have seen O'Gara being interviewed and being the most relaxed man in the Aviva maybe it was a coincidence maybe it was mind games but I have no doubt that Leinster thought or talked about O'Gara far more than he did about them and then he goes on to talk about the theming of a season that Agar does at this stage. I think most people are aware that the Everest theme uh, loomed large and in particular, who would you bring with you? And for him, it was his mother. Um, he says as well, rituals and traditions and symbols all part of theming. His squad ate cakes and sweets last season in Marseille after the captain's run. So this year, Ulton Delan knew who to call. His former Connacht teammate, Johnny Murphy's transitioned to being a baker and he's made do- and he made uh, donuts and cakes which they shared in the dressing room of the Aviva on the Friday with some music and laughs. Being comfortable in their own skin and connected is really important to them. 
And uh, he says as well, I thought it was lovely to see the late Anthony Foley's wife and two boys there as, Ronan ge- as Ronan's guests. Foley's legacy to Irish rugby should never be forgotten and it won't be with people like O'Gara to remember him. So uh, Jackman, Shane, joining everybody to genuflect at the altar that is Ronan O'Gara. Yeah, very much so. And look, as you say, you've you've kind of given me away, or as people will figure from my lack of input on the last topic, um, it, it it my my rugby knowledge would be pitifully low. But this guy sucks me in every single time he opens his mouth. He really, really does. And there's a couple of reasons why he sucks me in, Joe. And you've kind of touched on 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 one of the main ones there. I love. I just love the fact that he doesn't shy away from the media. I absolutely love it. There just seems to be. You know, once uh, somebody goes into management, there seems to be this, well, there are certain boxes here, there are certain things that you need to understand as a manager. One is the media are the enemy and you just, that's just has to be taken as a given and take, without actually thinking this through, like, well, why actually are, like, how many real life examples can anybody give of the media tripping up a manager or setting out to trip up a manager and therefore all managers learning, well, I'm not ever going to allow that to happen to me. I can't, you know, there's there's almost no examples of that ever happening. And he's managed to, I was going to say walk the line, but that even makes it sound like it is a treacherous thing to do. I don't believe it is a treacherous thing to do. He manages to just do it so simply. It's unbelievable. Like I would pick up the examiner or I will download one of your podcasts anytime he's talking or anytime he's written in it because he is absolutely fascinating he talks openly he talks honestly and how like it doesn't ever seem to backfire it doesn't ever seem to be an issue um, I, I just think he's he's fantastic at it and there's there's so few of them the, on, the only other real one that I can think of is you know I would have again I would probably have a guy in my top five coaches in any sport and another guy who I'd have in those top five is is Steve Kerr of the Golden State Warriors and Kerr does the exact same thing like Kerr is Kerr, Kerr does a weekly podcast where he comes on and he chats away completely up whether they've won whether they've drawn whether they've lost whether they're on a good run whether they're on a bad run whether there's been some controversy he comes on and he chats away to a guy who we always refer to as now it helps that he knows Molly's life kind of a thing and it's that kind of a conversation. Um, but again, it's... it's, And I'll tell you what it always makes me think as well. I don't know. I, I, thinking about my own football manager's hat on, right? I don't know if it applies as much in rugby or, or in basketball. But any time I, I hear O'Gara or any time I hear Steve Kerr talk, one of the upsides I think of is if I'm a player and I've got options between clubs, I want to play for that guy. That, that guy that I hear talks openly and honestly, or that guy that I read about and has got really interesting, thought-provoking stuff, that's the guy I want to play for. I think you can really, really sell yourself as a as a manager and a person that people want, want to work under there. And nobody, nobody sells themselves as well as this man, in my opinion. It's very interesting. I think if La Rochelle had faltered or if things weren't going well, you would absolutely hear lots of people saying and maybe even writing in the media... <laughs> O'Gara should spend less time talking and off the ball and writing in the examiner and more time coaching La Rochelle. Guarantee you. And I think all managers are acutely aware that that accusation will be out there if they don't succeed. Whereas as Jackman's piece says, he talks the talk and he walks the walk. Now, I think anyone who would say he should be spending less time writing for the examiner and talking off the ball as opposed to coaching, it's just easy, low-hanging fruit. It has no bearing on how things go with La Rochelle whatsoever. And, and that, you know, O'Gara talks a lot Andy Farrell doesn't talk very much mm. 
ultimately it makes very little difference there's also uh, the big thing here is and like I I totally agree with everything that Shane said and it would be brilliant for especially for the likes of me and you Joe if more people were like Ronan O'Gara but there is a huge element that he's not in Ireland at the moment and it's kind of easier to I think keep in touch that way Mm -hmm. whereas it's a matter of you know uh, when not if he returns to Ireland I don't think the access is going to be as open as it is now. Like, I would be shocked if, let's say, Ronan O'Gara was the next Ireland head coach, if he was still coming on off the ball as regularly as he is writing in his Irish Examiner column. I'd be very surprised. I could be wrong, uh, but I'd be very surprised. I think it's a very clever way of Ronan O'Gara, you know, staying and keeping, reminding everyone that he hasn't gone away and he's over here in La Rochelle paving his way. But it'll be fascinating to see what how that dynamic is when he comes home, I think. Mm. Yeah, the couple, couple of other things, like you spoke about um, Roundtree's emotional intelligence. I mean, again, mm. you know, has anybody got as good as, as perfected emotional and understandable emotional intelligence as much as, as this guy? He just seems to, to have it off to a T. And, you know, you speak about the, the teaming and I, I do like that. It is something that I've often looked at myself. How, you know, how do you build a narrative around a journey that people really buy into? Like, I would be fearful that if I tried to, and even by saying, I was about, about to say if I tried to pull off, but even by saying I tried to pull off, it sounds like that it's a gimmick. I would be fearful that if I tried to pull off the bring a photo of the person that they wanted to bring them uh, on the final ascent to Everest, that it would just look cheesy and corny and gimmicky. That e- easily ridiculed. Oh, yeah. very easily ridiculed. And that my own players would think, oh, here, this is some American. David Brent. And imagine David yes. Brent want to leave the room, yeah, please. 100%. Yeah. And he, here's a guy who's doing it in a second language with, and I know he spoke about it already, in multiple different cultures. Like, it, it is remarkable because you could, I was going to ask you actually what your kind of thoughts on kind of theming was because it is obviously the buzzword at the moment and I think the guy who does it, uh, David Sharkey mm. from Mulgar, I think he's an English teacher, um, which is fascinating as well. I, I'm pretty sure he is. I tell you what's super interesting. First dressing room I could think of that would laugh you out of the room if you brought that in is the Munster team he played on. <laughs> <laughs> really, yeah. 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 A few of those what brought that. Into yeah, I think so. But it's all about how it's packaged and, and you, his, eyes just, have, his eyes have been opened at the Crusaders. Yeah. yeah. But you just get the sense that he's, he's just able to package everything correctly. He's just able to present, you know, whatever the idea is, whatever he wants them to buy into you just he just able to present it and package it in a way that people think this is not like you know this isn't <laughs> this is not for show this is not as you said David Brent this is real he genuinely believes this and therefore we believe it too and there's massive like you, you hit the nail on the head there Joe like in terms of like it is a crusader as well like, I mean I'm sure loads of other teams are doing it but the crusaders have really brought it in and made it famous in rugby and there's huge credit if you're coming from the crusaders and this is where they do it with Scott Robertson and all that so if players are seeing that they want to be a part of that and it'll be fascinating to see if it catches on like it's it's one of those things where it could be going on more than we think but it's because O'Gara is so revealing and Mm. being so open and honest like he didn't have to say that stuff about his mother you know all the stuff that she was going through and again it just it it makes you buy into everything more and if if that's the kind of stuff that us in the media and in the public who are reading it and listening to it are getting imagine the kind of stuff that goes on behind closed doors you just you just you just have to be so real 
don't you? You've got to be if they if if they sniff yeah. or get the mm-hmm. slightest sense mm-hmm. that this is for show. Like I I know I know when Cheddar was over the leash senior hurlers. I know he he, he brought them up to the top of Dunamays and they all did a, a big thing about you know what being from leash means to them. And again, I was thinking, oh, I know some of the people in that leash senior panel, and I'm thinking, oh, oh my god, they wouldn't have bought into that whatsoever. And yet I'm talking, and they're telling me every single person, boys, you know, when you get it right and can do it correctly the buy-in then is, is massive it's a high wire act I suspect yeah, yeah. Uh, should let you know the latest in GA Wexford in uh, the hurling five points Kilkenny 2-4 that game threw in at 10 past 2 Wexford obviously staring Joe McDonough in the face uh, Westmead five points Antrim 2-6 Wexford need a favour from Westmead it doesn't look like they're about to get it we're going to take a very short break we're back with more from Shane and Keen on the papers just one second You're welcome back. If you're just tuning in, uh, lightning start for Dublin against Galway at Crow Park. The hurlers lead 2.15 to Galway's 10 points. Already a long way back for Galway. We're just coming up on half time. Uh, Wexford, they are up against it from the point of view of relegation. They need a favour from Westmead against Antrim, which they're not getting currently. Antrim 2.7 to 8 points up against Westmead. And Wexford at home to Kilkenny today. They are uh, trailing six points to Kilkenny's 2-7. So um, riding may well be on the wall already for Wexford. We are reviewing the papers here in studio with Shane Keegan and Keane Tracy. So um, to GA, Michael Dignan on the uh, back page of the Mail on Sunday, his column is alluded to. And inside, uh, he says it's time for Donald Cusack to step down as president of the GPA. Now, his piece starts by comparing Munster and Leinster and Hurling and he reckons that um, the notion that Munster is way ahead of Leinster is wrong. And he says, if you look back over history, over the last 50 odd years or so, 23 Leinster titles, all Ireland's that is, 23 for Munster, four for Galway. And he said, we'll claim Galway now. So that makes it 27 to 23 Leinster. So there's nothing between uh, the provinces. But later on, he, he talks about Donald O'Cusack's um comments about the Talchin Cup and he says no matter what the argument is he wants to talk about hurling or more importantly Munster hurling but why haven't Cork won in All-Ireland since 05 with their huge resources and playing numbers to me Dunlog has this goldfish bowl mentality it's all about Cork and Christy Ring and Munster Munster hurling only he said with the way the GA is developing with all the strides made with ladies football and camogie it all feels out of step the biggest problem I have with his comments is that it's coming from someone who is president of the GPA, one of their founding members. They've done a very good job in ways of looking after players, but times have changed. In our strategic plan, in Offaly, the players are at the the centre of everything. For the president of the GPA to say what he did about the Talchin Cup, a grand national for disappointed also-rans, I think his position is completely untenable. I think he has to go. He clearly has no time for football, for so many GPA members and for the effort they are putting in. Uh, the Talchin Cup, he finishes by saying, uh, needs support and needs leadership from the GPA president not to be denigrated in such fashion. That sort of Munster hurling superiority does uh, neither game any favours. So Michael Dignan, Dunlough, position in the GPA. Untenable. Thoughts? Firstly, I was surprised at how hard he went in. Um, that definitely did surprise me. Um, you know, I'm sure... 
done low like they have to be passing each other in the corridor I would have thought and on a Sunday night and in and out of the Sunday game um, one's in studio as the other sitting in the commentary box handing over yeah one to the other in in it in a, in a way in a manner mm, you'd like to be a fly in the wall the next time they they pass each other come across each other's path um, that definitely surprised me that, that he went in that hard I, I Dignan's articles in fairness to them they're always good value because they they you know it's the typical kind of one of you'll either probably either strongly agree or strongly disagree with him um, and as I was reading down through this article I disagreed with his first point agreed with his second disagreed with his third and agreed with his fourth really as I was going along Um I mean, the comparing of the Leinster and Munster one over 50 years is, to me, nonsensical. That's like saying Manchester United are a better team than Manchester City because they've won more league titles over the last 50 years. I, 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 don't, I don't get that. Um, so I don't, you know, you, you just have to look at the recent history. You, well, know. you go back over the last 20, a team called Kilkenny did OK. But how, how does the last 20 years refer to the current strength of both provinces hurling from a hurling point of view? Oh, if we're just talking current strength yeah. at this exact moment in time, then yeah, it's not yeah. a debate. Uh, you know, and I think that's, you know, is that not the point that, that people are saying that at this moment in time, Munster hurling is, is a hell of a lot stronger or more, in, you know, a more enjoyable watch? Down, um, the, down the years, people would generally say uh, Munster's where it's at. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the Kilkenny players have... 15, 20 years ago would admit to sitting there with their arms crossed listening to all this guff during the early part of the season at Munster Hurling and saying we'll show you in Crow Park. But 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 during the Kilkenny era was it not a case of Munster is where it's at because it's so competitive. Ah, we, know, yeah. we know Kilkenny are going to hammer, hammer no matter who comes out of Munster. Yeah. But it's a great Munster Championship because it's yeah. so level and it's so tight between us all. Yeah. Um, you know, in that sense. The, the, the second point, the one on, on the fact that Offaly, that he's arguing that, that Offaly are almost been punished in, in a, an area where they should be rewarded for trying to promote both codes equally, I couldn't agree with him more. Yeah, he says like Kilkenny should have half their funding taken away. <sighs> you know, it's you could definitely see where he's coming from there. Um, 100%. You have to hand it to Offaly. Offaly are doing a massive, massive amount right off the field at the moment, underage level. Joe um, and they should be rewarded for that dual approach without without a doubt in my opinion What about John Logue? Yeah um, I agreed then I disagreed I agreed that Donald Ogg's comments were poor um, ill-judged um, I know we're going to talk a little bit more when we talk about Eamon Sweeney's piece I I you know, I think maybe he sometimes we all maybe go over the top when we're trying to make a point and I think if he had an option to retract the, the comments without actually having to say I retract the comments um, he might take that option I would have thought do I think it makes his position as GPA president untenable no I like jeez we all say something stupid like you know you, we all say stuff that you, you kind of immediately cringe after you've said like Michael Dignan is doing an unbelievable job as chairman of, of the Offaly County Board at the moment. But he's, if he says one stupid thing, should he then have to step down? Like, I, uh, no, that would be awful for Offaly GA. Absolutely awful for Offaly GA. And, you know, when you're in the media as much as he is, or when you do bits like me and Keen are doing here now, or when you open your mouth like Don Logue does, there is a chance that, you know, if 95% of what you say is right, you know, there might be 5% that makes you look foolish and stupid. Yeah. I wonder is it's significant that initially on the back of his also ran comment there was no call for him to go but this has come now uh, subsequent to him mm. being offered the chance to just if not quite retract it on, on the, in, that, in that conversation with John Cantwell to just couch it a 
in in softer terms and well just what I mean by that is yeah. they're very disappointed to be there you, you they would prefer to be in the Lee McCarthy or sorry in the Sam Maguire that's all I was getting at it wasn't to denigrate them whereas almost the manner of that exchange defensive as he was probably hasn't helped his cause and probably angered a lot of people because he he almost appeared a touch aggressive in yeah. his defensiveness 100% and that I suppose that does take us straight across to the Eamon Sweeney piece in that sense yeah. in that um, I couldn't agree with you more there like if that question had been asked differently or if he had been given a heads up before they went on air and said, listen, we are going to have a chat on this Don Log. You know, you might want to have a think about, you know, what sort of, of, of uh, comeback you want to come with here. I think there's a, a really strong chance that Don Log might have said, ah, look, you know, maybe I was a little bit over the top. The point I was trying to make was, mm. you know, um, and phrased himself. Because he did in the midst of that exchange with John Cantwell, he did sort of, in one of his cerebral comebacks, he did say, well, do they want to be there? Yeah. Now, if you expand on that point and put it in softer terms, it explains your initial comment. Eamon Sweeney is is saying grudge match is a needless sideshow. So basically, he is saying that uh, he called the exchange between Cantwell and Dunlough cringe-inducing, encapsulated everything that's wrong with RTE's dismal GA coverage. Uh, he says, we're looking for thought-provoking debate, not a WWE-style grudge match. This was more Jerry Springer than Bill O'Herlihy. Um... He says that the question seemed to be sprung on him without warning. If that was the case, it seems strange behaviour on Cantwell's part. Briefing panellists on likely questions is standard practice on TV. It is to a point, not always. It's not clear why Cantwell felt bound to defend the secondary football's competition's honour at this juncture. She wasn't defending it. She was asking a question. I mean, they were comments that... I sort of feel this piece is harsh in RTE because like two weeks ago there's a piece written saying RTE coverage is banal mm. and bland and irrelevant <clears throat> and dull and controversy free. Well this was definitely a case of watching something through your fingers for me anyway. <laughs> for no, I get me it. it was. But, but you have to hold your hand up and say like they've had an agenda setting two weeks since that article between the GA Go Sunday game um, exchange and now this one, this follow up. Okay, I understand it was uncomfortable, and I like I was my arms crossed as well because it was frosty. But I think you have to acknowledge it wasn't dull. I was in here a couple of weeks ago doing the papers with you, Joe, and we were talking about that. It's like, what do you want from your your kind of pundits and stuff? And like, I'll be the first to admit, I absolutely wasn't watching this coverage that they were on, but I saw the clip mm. that was doing the rounds, and this is the point that we were making in terms of how well Sky do it in terms of their football coverage, but. Like, I wouldn't have really known about Dolo's comments, but of course it blew up on Twitter. And of course I watched it then. And yeah, it was it was frosty, but like there was an element of obviously huge debate and it got me kind of wondering more of what's going on. So it kind of, yeah, like, what do you want from your... your and listen, when I say I was looking at it, through, watching it through my fingers, I'm not saying that's a criticism. I'm mm-hmm. just saying it, as a, it was what it was. Like, I yeah. was going, oh my But, but I take your point. And, and to be fair to Sweeney, so I think it's harsh to maybe write the piece two weeks ago and say, this is all boring and then two weeks later after something that was completely box office to say well this isn't what we want to see I, you know, I, but to be fair to him I take his point and he does he does say that um, it, you know it, it almost will have a chilling effect on debate because it was so uncomfortable and there's probably a degree whereby like Bill could ask the lads a question and they'd say Bill you know what you're talking about you're an idiot mm. Bill and he'd chuckle and that kind of warmth was still there whereas this maybe felt a touch icier but like at the same time, you did have an RTE panel where Dunphy and Giles didn't talk to each other for how many years? <laughs> so like, I, I don't know. I think they're in, 
an, an invidious position. It's either dull or bland or now it's like, oh, well, that's a, you know, that's a sideshow and we want proper debate. But like sometimes, sometimes the, the, the best debates are idiotic. Like it's over. I mean, we laud Dunphy and the boys, but like the argument with Sunus where like, you don't know what you're doing. But like it was over Flamini. Mm. <laughs> you know, who cares about Flamini and whether he's uh, that good a player or not, you know? Yeah, I, I am interested in in the dynamic, Joel, like, you know, without giving away the magic altogether. Like, from your point of view, if if you could take us behind the cameras, like, what what is the norm in Siege? I was extremely surprised that Don Logue was hit with a question like this out of what appeared to be out of nowhere with no, yeah. you know, forewarning about it. Like, if, if I'm Don Logue there... Oh, once the cameras turn off there, I am I am firing some shots at some people very, very, very quickly. Mm. Now I, I don't know if I'm in my right or not. I don't know what way what is the the understanding here. Is it is it regarded in media as fine to do what was done or was it a bit There's no memo sent out at the start mm. of our careers. It's all judgment calls. Sometimes you'd think you might get a better piece of TV by not forewarning them. Other times you think, well, if I'm gonna confront them as okay, well happened in this instance maybe I should actually say to them listen I'm going to bring that up is that okay you don't have to tell them exactly what you're going to ask so. and look I, I know you can't give me a definite answer to this question but I'm yeah. going to ask any, so is that Joanne Cantwell on the solo run or is it RT asking don't Joanne know. Cantwell to ask that question don't know that's, that's know. interesting to me Which where where does the question come from there don't know it was at the start of the show, was it? Yeah. yeah. So, like, how was the, the, like, was it grand from there on in or was it kind of, like, RT, like, football panel back in the day? So, like, did it continue to be frosty or did it kind of... I think it's that weird thing where if you ask anyone who didn't see the initial exchange and just tuned in, they wouldn't have noticed anything okay. out of order. But if you'd seen the initial yeah. exchange, yeah. you would have yeah, thought, yeah, God, yeah, it's yeah. really You're watching for it now. You're watching for <laughs> it. Every yeah. micro movement of a face, every twitch. Because yeah. um, Eamon Sweeney does make the point, how many of Eamon Dunphy's or Ted Walsh's or Jerry Kiernan's memorable observations would have survived uh, this kind of pedantic dissection? Um, and then he does say, Don Logue let himself down all the same. Um, being in the right isn't always enough. He probably owes the host an apology, but she owes him one too in private, says... Oh, he handled it poorly, Joe. There's no doubt he handled it poorly. Uh, I just think, you know, everybody could have come out of this looking a little bit better if... And and look, we probably wouldn't have got the TV moment that... Well, that's the interesting thing. Yeah, we wouldn't have got the TV moment. So maybe if you preemptively say, listen, a lot of criticism of your remarks Mm. on Morning Ireland. I'm going to ask you about it. You can either retract or you can couch them differently or you can double down, whatever you want. But I think we need to talk about it. And then you'd probably get a sense from what they say back to you of how the conversation is going to go and you approach accordingly. And maybe that would have resulted in Donalogue not coming across. Like, it did seem like he was just almost but, affronted. And, and again, right, so what, again, because I'm asking you, I suppose, nearly again, a better way, like, I find it hard to believe that when the cameras went off, mm. Donalogue being... Um, you know, as abrasive a character, I suppose, as he is and as forthright as he is, I find it hard to believe that when the cameras went off that Don Logue didn't turn around and say, Joanne, was that you? Or did RTE ask you to do that? Because I'm not happy. Mm. And I'd like to know what the response was then and what way that conversation played out. I, I yeah. think from, from Joanne Cantwell's point of view and from the journalist's point of view, like keeping my journalist hat on, I don't know if you've ever been in this situation, Joe, but there's been a couple of times over the years where before I've done an interview with someone, they've asked me to send the questions to them. Mm. Now, like that is just a big, big no-no. And I'm not saying it's exactly the same as this, but just to your point, Joe, if 
Joanne Cantwell had given some sort of a heads up, then you mm. may, maybe would have gotten kind of a, a, a polished answer that maybe you weren't quite looking for because the notion of me sending interview questions to an interviewee is just, I don't know about you, Joe, but I certainly wouldn't do it. I wouldn't sit down to interview someone if they knew. Now, that's not to say that like, I'm coming armed with anything. And and by the way, the the occasions that it did happen, there was nothing like extra controversial. Yeah, they just yeah. wanted to be prepared for anything possible. And I didn't feel comfortable about doing that. So I said, thanks, but no thanks. So maybe that's some sort of mm. direction Joanne Cantwell was coming from it. I'm not sure, obviously, either. I don't know. I, it's... Uh, it, it all depends on your position, I suppose, as a broadcaster, because Eamon Sweeney says Cantwell is supposed to be Cusack's colleague rather than his opponent. Now, a lot of people would say, yeah, I agree with that. Whereas, and I've had people get on to me, uh, like who I would respect in journalism and say, you're not their colleague. You're mm-hmm. there to hold them to account. Yeah. So that point that Cantwell is supposed to be his colleague rather than his opponent that's not a fact. That's a point of view. That's Sweeney's point of yeah. view for sure. But not everyone would agree with that. Some people uh, would absolutely, and have said it to me, listen, you're not there to be O'Gara's friend. You were there to hold him to account. Mm. Everything he says has to be examined. And I think that's the approach that Cantwell has. And it serves her very, very well in loads of instances. And I, like, it was totally fair enough that she asked that question. Yeah, but yeah. It, maybe it's. I don't know if it's totally fair enough to blindside somebody with the we, question. We don't, we don't, uh, maybe blindside is the wrong phrase. Yeah, we don't now, know she blindsided him. And, by the and, way, true. And now, and again, what I would say, by the way, is once the decision has been made that she is going to ask the question, um, I think she then actually handled the interaction really well. Like she didn't cower away from him coming back. She kind of stood yeah. reasonably firm without being overly aggressive. Again, it's you know similarities with. Shane and, and, and Kelly Harrington situation maybe a little bit I, I thought she handled the whole situation reasonably well I think he probably didn't handle it as well, well the stuff yet I like, go back to what prompted the conversation and I'm not sure yeah, yeah, who was yeah. in the right and who was in the wrong in that yeah. sense yeah 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 because yeah. uh, you know there was the initial well you misquoted me yeah she, 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 she misspoke had, and corrected herself straight away yeah. and then and like did you listen to the piece yeah, like, where are you going with this? Don't look. You're trying to trip me up here, and it's not really working. Like, yeah, yeah. Maybe it was wasn't especially generous on anyone's part. Yeah. Is um, the point? But yeah, we're here. We are still talking about. It. Well, indeed, you know what I mean. Oh, listen, I was, I was, I was, I was, at, I was at my godson's. We didn't actually see it live either. To be honest with you, we turned off. To, we were down making a cup of tea. We'd watch. We were watching the getting ready to watch the game. But I was at my godson's uh, communion. And like I was like a child going around with the clip on my phone. Look, have you seen it? Have you seen it? I'm running around everybody at the communion. Well, you see this. Yeah, that's why my my overarching point <laughs> is like, if, if you've criticised them for being dull, you have to acknowledge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it certainly wasn't that this time around. Uh, short break. We're back with Shane Keegan and King Tracy on the Sunday papers. Now you're very welcome back to studio. So later on, we do have Everton Bournemouth in the Premier League. Stephen Doyle and Brian Kerr on commentary. We'll check in with Mossy Quinn at Crow Park uh, this hour ahead of Dublin Roscommon in the football. Uh, but we are going through the Sunday papers. Shane Keegan, Cove Robler's manager and Keen Tracy, the Irish Independent here in studio. Uh, let's turn to, uh, I guess, one of those kind of topics which bubbles up and captures the imagination uh, for a week. And it was about the extent to which there should be competition at underage level in GEA. So this all came, by the way, on the back of an email from the GEA just reminding people of the status quo. This is not a new idea introduced, but it it felt like it was being introduced the way it was discussed. So we're talking here about the Go Games in GEA, whereby 
so since the idea, writes Michael Foley, was first uh, floated at a GA uh, coaching conference in 2004, any number of reports and analysis have shown exactly the impact. Surveys before 04 showed huge numbers of children and teenagers dropping out of Gaelic games when matches were played as 15 aside with subs and all the trappings of championship play. In 2013, one piece of research from the GA showed a 30% increase in membership at the Go Games age levels alone. So what happens at this age group is that all children up to under 12s play small-sided games. Everyone gets equal playing time. No scores are published. There are no competitions or trophies. Every last shred of research across sports, as Mick Foley tells you, this approach uh, works. And uh, I suppose he's not overly in agreement with the uh, sense that uh, there's this idea that kids need to be exposed quickly to the reality of winning and losing as some kind of essential character building ex- experience before many of them are even clear on the situation with Santa Claus. What are we preparing them for exactly? War? He asks. Go Games, he says, also offers a low pressure environment for coaches to get a feel for how to organise teams, etc. Mentions the Dubs generation because the D- Dublin, one of the first counties to really buy into this way of doing things he says the Kilkenny McCaffrey generation uh, giving their kids more touches of the ball more opportunities to develop their decision making faculties more chances to improve their skills and tons more games has worked out fairly well for them uh, he says if coaches get frustrated with the lack of focus on competition and winning so what it's not about them discuss I deliberately didn't want to know either of your opinions before <laughs> we did this on air. Hoping for a good old-fashioned row. <laughs> um, yeah, we had a little bit of a chat outside before coming in. I, I have found that... Uh, You're very involved in coaching underage teams. Well, it's, it's my, my full-time day job is as a, as a coach for Leinster GEA, uh, Joe, and as part of that day job, um, I've come straight in here from an underage festival of football out so in Kilmacook. So, GEA Coates. employee agrees with GEA policy. <laughs> yeah, shock horror, shock horror. But <laughs> That's the first I, no, job listen, for you there, Yeah, thanks, one up already. <laughs> I'm going to be able to listen, I'm, I'm going to be able to back this up without a doubt, without a doubt. Um, yeah, I suppose... Any time there is a rule change in any walk of life, regardless of a sport, if, if if we change the speed limits on the road in a certain area, what why is there a rule change on anything? There's a rule change on anything to change people's behaviours. All right. So why is this rule here? Like this is the whole premise of it from the start is this rule is not here to change the behaviours of the people playing the game. It's absolutely not there to change the behaviours of the people playing the game. It is 100% there to change the behaviours of the parents and the coaches on the sideline at the games. I've heard the argument made this week elsewhere that, but sure, if kids have a game in on the, the lawn at the front of their estate, or if kids have a game in the schoolyard, they'll keep the score. They'll be competitive. They'll knock lumps out of each other. They, they won't go non-competitive. That is because... They have the perfect environment for competition, i.e. there are no parents and coaches interfering and ruining it on them. Like, we literally, we have to, to make it a competitive environment for kids to play a match, we need to remove the competitiveness from their coaches and from their parents. Once you do that, 
that allows the kids to be extremely competitive that under 8 blitz this morning Joe that's still going on I'll be tipping out for the tail end but when we're finished here is non-competitive um, the recent scoreline's been kept I'll, I'll come back to that I'll, a little bit of a caveat on that right the recent scoreline's been kept necessarily um, they're not announcing which team won which team lost at the end of every game there is no league table I think there's like 8 groups of 4 or something like that is the way they have it set up it's an unbelievable tournament out there in fairness to them um, they're knocking lumps out of each other out there all morning alright every kid has a fair idea of whether they've won or lost at at the end of it without a doubt and yet that is supposed to be non-competitive I, I would challenge anybody to go out and tell me that if, you, if they're out in UCD this morning watching what's going on out there that it's an airy fairy you know dreamland where nobody yeah. cares whether to win or lose or nobody's and tackling because the score isn't being kept is the resultant behaviour of parents and coaches better? a million times better Joe because okay as the coach as the parent you're still keeping an eye to see whether your team has won or lost and you still know but you just look like a wally now if you're talking about it like if you're you know oh yes we won and we're you know we came away from the like there is there will be nobody announced as the winner out there today right if there was everybody's focus on the sideline shifts Okay, if the results are going to be published online, we don't want our Port Leash team being seen to have come bottom of a group. So therefore, don't put on Johnny because we need we can we need to win this one. We need to stay on the right side of this one. Don't let Johnny off. We, we have an easier game coming in the next game. We might be able to get Johnny on the field in the next one. Yeah. Let's leave him there for this one. Um, and you know how we communicate to the players. Next ball, we have to win the next ball because we don't want it up online that we finished bottom of of a group. Like it completely alters behaviour. Completely. Yeah. You know. Yes, you might end up winning all of your games out there today and technically you know that you were one of the best teams out there but you can't go back to the lads in the pub this evening and talk about winning a tournament where there was no winners in the tournament or where we're not keeping that you just look stupid then so I think it does completely change the the dynamic I think some of the points that that Michael makes within it are, are brilliant like the goal games is fantastic it's absolutely fantastic I'm a a bit of a, a mixed breed in that my own young fella so his club Bursley Hutton we had go games yesterday morning um, against against Castletown over in, in Leash and again like it was just an outstanding morning and look the referees have learned to be brilliantly diplomatic in this I'm pretty sure yesterday's referee somehow managed to send the Castletown lads away thinking they had won and sent the Bursley Hutton lads away thinking they had won as well um, by kind of just being cute about it yeah it was a tight one but you know and you're just you're praising both teams it's not like you know I don't I, give me give me the argument against it is what I keep saying give me the argument against it Keen, this woke world has gone mad uh, no, I, I'm. Yeah, we probably overhyped um, our disagreement. Even though I don't even think it was a disagreement because <laughs> no, I'm not. No, true, I'm not true, out true. in um, a weekend watching these underage games, and you know I'm not seeing the behaviour of parents on the side of the pitch. So I totally like accept Shane's point. All I can do is compare it to my own experiences when I was growing up, and I can tell you now that I stopped playing a particular sport because there was just very little to no competitiveness in it. We were told we'd be playing competitive games against this team that team you'd rock up on a Sunday morning and we here we were we were training again at the time I was probably playing four or five uh, sports so I just sacked off that sport I, l- I left it off I, I just lost interest in it because there was no competitiveness again this is just me um I much preferred to go and play the other sports that there was something tangible there and this is I'm I was only 10 or 11 now by the way when you're a real winner 
No, but, it, but not necessarily. Not necessarily winner, but like I know. I, I, I default, I'm a loser. I'm messed, I'm but like the, the idea that the referee sends both teams home and they both think they're in just leaves me a bit cold. If, if I'm being honest, I don't know if I'm too cynical. And again, like I don't have kids like where you know. And I understand the argument that the participation is really, really important, and you don't want to see because we've all been on teams over the years where we've seen people who don't get as much game time, and that's like I'm, I'm not I'm not for that whatsoever but the notion where everyone wins and we all go home happy leaves me a bit cold and like I said I would worry and again I don't have anything to back this up but I can only compare it to yeah, myself yeah. Woods like is there not a fear that um, girls and boys will be turned off playing GA and they'd rather go play soccer now or they go play rugby or something else which has a bit more of an edge because certainly that's what I did and that's all I can compare it to I think yeah, because we don't. Funny in this debate for obvious reasons, we're not hearing from the kids. Mm. Based on your characterization of what you're seeing, Shane, they're still into it just as much. Uh, they're not. They're not looking around, going, "Well, what's the point if we're all winners?" Yeah. And, and may, all look, maybe that example I gave yesterday, where where Brian managed to make both teams think they'd won, it was, it was kind of it was just a, a really really close game, if that makes sense. And both really want to know where they won, and but by and large. They will know who won and who lost. Well, you know, like, sorry, I mean, kids are keeping score in every uh, aspect of their life. Socially, they're keeping score. Academically, they're keeping score. They but, know what's what. I mean, Enda McGinley, I thought, had a very interesting piece on the RT website, just to give it a counterpoint. Mm. Three-time All-Ireland winner with Tyrone, a deep thinker, smart fella. You know, he was reminiscing about how the Nakamani Cup, which he won in primary school, is like one of the highlights of his... Um, career and fast forward 30 years later and uh, he went to see his son compete and now his daughter's competing and he told her that this could be the last one that there'll ever be and she's in disbelief and so he writes how something that was a real highlight for generations is now a danger to children having fun and enjoying their game is a tough one to explain and he says of the coaching point find me one coach at under 10 level who is focused on winning trophies and I'll find you an equivalent 20 with sense who are just trying to develop the kids under their charge as best they can. And he suggests, you know, I mean, imagine this, but like a middle ground. He was wondering if maybe there's an argument to have three or four or five blitzes across the year where you can really prep for them and they're like a bit of a highlight where you go and actually play in a competition of sorts. And then for the other 30, 40 weeks of the year, it's that lovely non-competitive environment, but you still get a, a taste. Jeez, we won the trophy. Wasn't that one of the best days of our young lives? And that's we had great, ice cream afterwards. I think that's a great, a great show. Personally, again, not being on the ground and not knowing it, I think the idea that you can have the go games because I'm actually not like totally against that whatsoever. Like I said, because if it means more, more boys and girls are getting to play, then that's brilliant. But I think that's a great idea to have. Like, you know, and maybe everyone doesn't want to enter into that kind of thing, but I guarantee you, and you'll definitely know, Chain. There's plenty of lads and girls there who want that competitive all, edge as well yeah, and, and look they're all like I say they're all out there this morning they're, you know, they, will, they will trudge off the field really annoyed and disappointed if they have been bet in their heads because they know if they're bet or not I suppose yeah there's definitely you know there's definitely a bit of a a, um, a caveat in this whole thing in that I'm not hearing any talk of there of of there being changes to coming to one school, and coming to one school is you know doggy <laughs> doggy dog. It really really is, and it's technically the same age group. Like you know, what are you what age are you when you're in sixth class twelve there thereabouts? And I mean, we've the coming to one school finals this week in Leash, and they will be taken massively seriously by everybody involved. Um, so that definitely provides an out an outlet. Is it kind of you know? suiting themselves to allow competition in some areas and not in others look 
I suppose to try and back up my own argument I, I would contrast it against the situation we had a couple of weeks ago Joe whereby in with our lo- with my local soccer team our under 11 soccer team had a cup semi-final which went to penalties now they won they won it but it, it only made you feel slightly worse for the opposition than you would have felt for your own team like two 10, 11 like for starters as they were walking up to take the penalties they were nearly crying like they're 10 and 11 and they're trying to get into a cup final and it's all going to come down to whether or not they score this penalty I know it's so exciting <laughs> as, as a, as Shane as a, a, as a 12 year old who missed a, a penalty in a county semi-final yeah, um, that like yeah I still haven't recovered Scary from it like. but that, like I mean it can also be the making of you one, one interesting point that I, I would I would wonder and again I bow to your expertise on this is there any fear and I know we're talking about very young kids mm. here but is there any fear of the la- if the lack of competition is driven out of it that players aren't quite then getting the the, the, the same level once they hit into the 12-13 that they would have got if the competition was fierce and all of a sudden then you're reducing the potential of certain players I don't know it could be See, wild with that but I suppose my, I'm coloured here because my opinion on, on the whole thing is that there is no alteration to the competition for the players I, I see no difference between how competitive the players are in a game yeah. where mammy and daddy and coach are keeping the score as against how competitive they are in a game where mammy and daddy and coach aren't keeping the score. Well, that's the point They're 100% as competitive in both situations. It's, it sounds like it's all working fine and parents just need to accept it. Listening to you. Yeah, and, and like, who did you say it was McGinley, was it? Enda McGinley. Enda, yeah. Enda McGinley's comments. Yeah. I see where he's coming from and I do like the idea that you've thrown out there about the, the blitz thing I think there is yeah there's probably still a place to try and retain but I think he's been fairly kind on the 1s to 20 ratio there now now I do think I do think the ultra competitive ones are in the minority thankfully I think they were probably in the majority probably still up till about 5 years ago mm. now because of the change of mindset thankfully around the whole thing everywhere across sport I think they're now in in the minority but I would say minority being 25% to 75%, not one is to 20. And just one um, last thought for me then. So this is a a fairly blunt instrument to try and curb the behaviour of coaches and parents. And so that works up until they're 12. I mean, in my experience of playing at 13, 14, 15 and 16, 17, what's coming around the corner here... Oh, hell still breaks loose. Is hell breaking loose. Mm -hmm. So I wonder, do the... Like, if participation is key, do the GAA... And all sports maybe need to think about rules whereby referee keeps track and every team all the way up until 17s has to empty the bench, for instance. Mm. Because yeah. it's, I, I would suspect that the only danger with uh, Go games is that it works lovely. But I mean, like from a minute past midnight at under 13 level, yeah. then like the Pep Guardiola's in, in, uh, on the sideline are coming out. And so then little Johnny's been told, this is actually serious now, Johnny. Yeah. We've gone from no competition to we are in a competition. This is new to all of us. I'm in my first season as manager. Mm. I want us to do well. You're, you know, you're not playing, and that only gets worse. 14, 15, 16, and what's more, that is the age group where there is the most dropout. So, I was even suggesting to we were chatting on Thursday, and I was saying like, I get it. I, I don't have a problem with it. And listening to you, I have even less of a problem with it. It sounds like uh, absolutely a way to go. Even though I really enjoyed winning and losing as a ten year old, it <laughs> didn't affect me. I don't think I only cry two to three times a night. <laughs> yeah. um, but but I I did wonder if like some rule whereby where it starts getting very competitive. Like I said, and I know referees have enough to do, but some mechanism whereby participation is hopefully encouraged by a guarantee of emptying the benches with at least twenty minutes to go. So look, there there are there are areas where 
Um, the FAI are ahead of the GEA there are areas where GEA are ahead of the FAI right? so don't anybody think this is me saying oh soccer is ahead of the GEA right but there's two things that the FAI have got very very right um, at the moment and one is so in the under 14 League of Ireland okay instead of two halves there's now three thirds alright and the particular reason around this mechanism is that the rule in place is all players must play a third of the game yeah great who enforces that? Um, the coaches are supposed to enforce it but you can be having been at underage League of Ireland games you can be pretty sure there'll be at least one FAI official at almost every League of Ireland game the local, the local FAI they're rep. not sent along though to make sure that Johnny is getting his game like I'm just curious keep an eye out for they're both to keep an eye out it's progressive it's, it's very That's progressive Joe. Yeah. and the other one arguably even more progressive which I think would def- definitely take a bit longer to maybe um, be considered maybe within, within the GEA is overage players are allowed to play down so basically there's you're told at the start of the season so let's say teams have just finished under 15 season okay they're now going to jump from under 15 to under 17 right you've got a guy who's not underage to play under 15 next year technically is really good player but he's very small mm. he's still slight he hasn't filled out yesterday you're going to release him because he's not big enough and bold enough to look after himself in under 17 no the FAI are saying to you we know he's overage we're going to let you play him anyway love that mm-hmm. it's great yeah you know, and I think there's massive scope for that it's within a bit like in New Zealand, as well. where they'll uh, designate categories on weight as opposed yeah, to. Yeah, and you you have to do it within the spirit of the rule. Do you know what I mean? You can't yeah. you can't play an overage guy who's you know two foot taller than everybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, again, within reason, case, be, of, case by yeah. case, be sensible on it. But I think there, you know, that's another thing that we could definitely look to try and bring along here. Um, it sounds. I'm going to go to Crow Park now in just one second. I would say, on the whole, though, having listened to a lot of the conversations this week and comparing it with my own experience. 20 years ago it sounds like we're in such a better place oh, no doubt. it's so much more holistic it's so much more encouraging it's less do or die it's less vicarious living through the kids like honestly it was the killing field in my day Yeah. and, I, and the coaches were great Just the, the, it was all well meaning but like yeah. we really wanted to win yeah. as, a, as a club we, we had, now, we had matches so much stopped. more enlightened. We had matches stopped yeah. while I was growing up because parents and stuff were running on for oh, soccer. Like I've been in, I've been in those situations. Oh yeah, as well. I, like well, it's in, in, I, I was talking about soccer in in Ga, Like the fights were off the charts <laughs> at like thirteen, fourteen. Whereas yeah. the the whole atmosphere yesterday morning at the goal games, this morning at out of Kilmacud Crooks, it's it's a fantastic environment yeah. to be around. It is. It can only nourish yeah, yeah, yeah. personality and talent which is what we're all after that, that is why they're going to grow up to be a soft generation <laughs> I'm joking I'm joking, I'm joking. Um, no it does sound like we're in a much better place which is great which is great I think so yeah okay uh, we might turn to in broad terms Premier League football uh, loads of interesting pieces thought um, I, I don't know how convinced I am Andy Cole just was a kind of interesting <laughs> read Andy Cole I, I keep calling him Andy Andrew He's a spiky character and he always has been really spiky. We had him at a roadshow once and I couldn't work out if... It was just very defensive and I I kind of didn't love the media. Warmed up as it went on but it was like a a slow thaw, I I, I thought. And that comes across uh, a little bit in this interview. So... Uh, he's been asked about the fact that Erling Haaland, after all this time, has finally broken his record of 34 goals for Newcastle in the 93-94 season. And he's asked, you know, how does it feel to see your records broken? I couldn't give an F, says Cole. I'm being honest. I'm not anal that way in any shape or form about someone breaking my goal scoring records. 
Uh, now, some people might be pissed, but people say, I must be disappointed. Why? Because someone scored more goals than me. It's taken 20 years to get that close. Am I going to rock myself to sleep and think, oh, God, someone's broken my record? No, I'll take my hat off to him. I'll salute him. Uh, later on in the piece, for instance, the point is made that only Shearer, Kane and Rooney have scored more Premier League goals than Andrew Cole. So Wayne Rooney, Henri, Aguero, Harry Kane, Michael Owen, of all of those great strikers, only Shearer, Kane and Rooney have scored more. Uh, Takeaway penalties and Cole uh, only scored one penalty and only Shearer has scored more. So Cole also has five Premier League titles, two FA Cups, Champions League as part of that treble year. Does he think people don't, does he think he doesn't get the credit he deserves? Do you want me to be honest with you? He asks, of course. Do you want me to be brutally honest? Yes. Uh, It's a game. People have played this game with me for many years. If you look at everything I've achieved in my career, there is no striker I've played against who's achieved what I achieved and doesn't get the accolades I should be getting. Not one. If you talk about numbers, which everyone does, mine stack up. If we're talking about achievements, there's no one who's achieved more than me. So how can people talk about me as if I was very fortunate to be able to achieve what I achieved? I know there's an agenda because everything stacks up on my side. Later on in the piece, the um, journalist James Sharp, who spoke to him, says Cole believes his race has played a part and because he refused to give interviews during his playing days. People branded him as arrogant. He felt the media was out to get him, uh, was his sense. And then he's comparing the 99 United side with uh, City of 23. And he says, I wouldn't change what my team uh, achieved. We're the first team to do it. And until someone else actually does it, we're still the best team. You see all the nonsense people are saying. What makes me laugh is they talk about this 99 team as if it was just bang average. I don't know if they do, really, but that's his sense. Uh, obviously, he's had his health issues as well. Kidney failure 2015, transplant in 17. His nephew, Alexander, age 26 at the time, donated his kidneys, uh, or his kidney, of course, to Cole. Cole's marriage fell apart in the middle of it all. He says, there's still good and bad days. Um, it's hard, but I'm still here. I'm still cracking on. I'm still uh, speaking my mind. There are days when getting out of bed is a bit of a struggle. Days when you don't want to do certain things, but you've got to crack on. I've got to enjoy whatever I've got left in me. And uh, he's talking with great pride because uh, his son, who lost his contract at Man City eight years ago, will walk out at Wembley for Barnsley in the League One playoff tomorrow. And he's 28 years of old now. And he's he scored 16 goals this season. Cole uh, will be there. And he's immensely proud. So, um, I, like, I, I wouldn't even say unlikable. I don't know if, if, if likable would be the verdict. Would you not say unlikable, no? Oh, OK, look, probably being a bit di- diplomatic. Your old show's coming up, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very self-consciously spiky. You must know he's been spiky. Yeah. You didn't like him? Nah, but I'd say that's... I, you know, you, you get a lot of people whose thing is that uh, nobody likes me, and I like that nobody likes me. And he just kind of strikes me as that sort of fella. But this, like, that's not on the back of this, sure. I mean, it's been a reasonably well known fact for a fairly long period of time, yeah. I would have thought. Uh, I suppose I probably should add that I did my A license with Teddy Sheringham, so um, <laughs> that may be colouring my thinking here somewhat. Imagining Teddy now over tea saying, gather around everyone, <laughs> lapping up every story. Yeah, 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 that's pretty, you've got it off to a tea to be honest there, yeah. yeah. Well, to be fair, maybe Teddy wasn't a reliable narrator. <laughs> true, true, true. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know, he just, like I say, he, it won't bother him, He 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 he's very much his own man, I would think that's for sure in fairness to him. Um, but, uh, I think you might have 
past commentage in the text you know that do protest too much possibly in terms of I couldn't give an F about my records <laughs> do you know what it reminded me of as I was reading through do you know that meme where it's a cartoon and there's a mask and the mask yes. is smiling but yeah, beneath yeah, the mask yeah. it's like this seething anger <laughs> that's what I couldn't couldn't stop thinking of as I was reading it do you think so. he has a point when he says his career is a bit disrespected though yeah absolutely because I think when you see it in black and white and you've already read out the, the point that, um, that I had highlighted Joe just about the, the actual number of goals that he's scored and takeaway penalties Cole, Cole scored one only Shearer scored more that to be honest like, and I would have grown up as in Andy Cole's generation and um, I was really surprised when I saw that so yeah maybe he does have a point in terms of being disrespected yeah obviously at Newcastle it was off the charts like mm-hmm. it, was, it was frightening and then when he moved to United there was a settling in period and he would have garnered the reputation and I think Glenn Hoddle may have said it publicly that's open to correction but he would have garnered the reputation certainly as a striker who needed two chances to score one if not three chances for a time I think he got better as his career went on and that improved but it takes a long time to shake that reputation but I'm, I'm like I'm, I'm just wondering I'm a bit like who's disrespecting him like, you or, no. the media <laughs> like how like <laughs> Andy, Cole, Andy Cole was an absolutely unbelievable goal scorer unbelievable I, I think if, if you were to say to people give me the great strikers in the Premier League I think he would feel that most people the top of their head would take too long to get to his name and I think that's I think that's true I think most people would They'd say Shearer, they'd say Henri, they'd Aguero. say they'd say Aguero. Yeah. Um, they'd say a few more and then they might think, Oh, and Cole they'd they have yeah. Cole in the kind of oh yeah, and like that kind of Ian Wright I territory. I wonder I wonder how much of it is because Tyler would get mentioned ahead of him. Van Nistroy, these kind of lads. Yeah. I wonder how much of it is because um himself and York had this like unbelievable partnership the likes of which I know tactics have changed so much that we've very rarely seen since and they almost were a duo rather than individuals because Dwight York could argue lots of similar things okay his numbers aren't as good as Andy Cole but you'd be I think if you ask Joe people for a list like Dwight York could be well done now maybe that's fair enough but York didn't do it for long enough yeah but potentially but he was good at Villa he was with yeah he was good at Villa Yeah, he won a treble and he said That'll do me. That'll do me. Yeah, I <laughs> think the that was the sense. Yeah. It's a bit harsh. I, I, Cole I, kept doing it. I think I thought he was an absolutely unbelievable goal scorer. Yeah. If you asked me to name top five goal scorers in, in Premier League history, I would probably have him there, thereabouts. But he's kidding himself if he thinks he's Erling Haaland. Like he's, he's, he's not. He doesn't care though, Shane. But he's not close he to Erling Haaland. <laughs> he doesn't care. <laughs> no, he doesn't care. I'm sure he certainly doesn't care about my opinion or any of our opinions, I would have thought. But I... I I agree with him that he, you know, I agree with his opinion that he was an absolutely brilliant goal scorer. Um, but if he's, you know, if he's arguing that comparisons between himself that he doesn't measure up to Haaland are unfair, he's he's wrong. There was a bit of an underlying, um, it, well, certainly that's what I was reading in it, that if I was playing in this Man City team, you know, it's chance. I think there was a line in it. Well, he's getting chance after chance, and it was kind of like, mm, well, yeah, he did say he scored his thirty fourth Newcastle in a newly promoted side, so there was yeah. a hint of that. But <laughs> I think even he would concede Haaland's on a different level. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much everyone. Um, that's in the mail on Sunday just to mention by the way it made for grim reading and it is just a quick mention because this is not a new development but Dan McDonald, page 1415 just looked into the minutes of Irish players in the Premier League and uh, like Dan rightly I think makes the point that comparing the current situation to the 90s is pointless because that was just a different world but he said if you contrast it to just a decade ago then you really see how the Premier League's ever um, burgeoning growth is really squeezing Irish players just in the last 10 years. So um, he says it's a stark representation. Consistently, uh, we were around 25 players a decade ago. We're now down to half that number. And he basically says that 
Evan Ferguson is uh, the cherry on a charred cake because after him it's not great. So Evan Ferguson, he, he basically ranks the 12 Irish players on how their season has gone in order of like the best season. So it's like Evan Ferguson, number one, needs no explanation. Seamus Coleman, number two, 23 appearances. Number three is Nathan Collins, 25 appearances, but like from Craig Dawson's purchase in January, basically hasn't played. Gavin Bizzuno, fourth. And Dan says, it reflects the lack of strength and depth that a goalkeeper who conceded a large number of goals playing for the division's worst side is deemed to be the fourth best Irish performer. Fifth is Matt Doherty. Again, that's one of those things where you're like, was Matt Doherty at Spurs this season? (laughs) Uh, Twelve appearances. Six is Mark Travers. But again, after conceding nine at Anfield, he's... Uh, been relegated to reserve status and Bournemouth have gone from strength to strength. Seventh is Joe Hodge. Hasn't got on the pitch since January. Eighth is Andrew Moran, Brighton. Do you think most Irish fans would know Andrew Moran if he walked into a room? Oh. One appearance is from Bright- for Brighton. That's number eight on the list. Now Dan does say this could age well, that he's been on the bench a dozen times, he's signed his four-year deal. You know, his one appearance could be looked back on as the start. But nine is Tom Cannon, Everton two appearances. I don't think most people know Tom Cannon, loan spell at Preston. Shane Duffy, 10, five appearances, four of those five. This is just insulting. Four of those five coming with a minute left to go in proceedings. Shane Duffy's their 89th minute guy. Mm-hmm. And then you've got 11, Connor Commentary, West Ham, 12, Connor Ron Wolves, one appearance piece. So, I mean... Shane even Duffy once smacks if we have a last minute corner, doesn't it? Oh, from a decade ago when we were at 25, now down to 12... Premier League's just not a, a, a league for Irish players anymore. Joe, go, not. go through those names and numbers. Mm-hmm. What's it going to be next season? All right. So obviously Evan Ferguson is the shining light. Yeah. If he wasn't there, how grim would this be? Ever, Everton could possibly be relegated today. Will Seamus Coleman be a regular for them next season even if they weren't? Nathan Collins can't get in the team. Gavin Bazoon has been relegated. Matt Doherty's gone out of the Premier League. Mark Travers can't get in the team. Joe Hodge can't get in the team. Andrew Moran can't get in the team. Tom Cannon is per... Is he going to stay at Everton or is he going to sign permanently for Preston? Shane Duffy is not going to play in the Premier League again. Conor Coventry has gone from West Ham. We'll have a few coming up, hopefully. Josh Cullen is the big one. Yeah. yeah. But we could be down to two or three mm. next yeah. season. Dan does make that point. You have John Egan, yes. Enda Stevens, Josh Cullen, Michael Obafemi. Yes. But the, the panel with this piece, Joe, because obviously you have the, the 12 yes, names it was, and it's yeah. stark, but the panel is really like stark as well. Like you mentioned Shane Duffy in the 2017-18 season, he was on 36. Like, you know, it's yeah. remarkable. Like, I mean, if I was Shane Duffy. Oh, look, you can't because you're getting paid that much. But like the fourth time I was brought on in the final minute, I would be saying... <laughs> Think of the appearance fee, Joe. Appearance bonus. Appearance fee. Appearance bonus, Joe. It's a big one. It's demoralising though, isn't it? (laughs) Four of your five appearances with a minute to go. I'd take it. That's mad. I'd take it. You you would think it might might happen to you once in a season. Senior player. (laughs) Anyway, um, yeah, that is fairly stark. We are pretty much over time. Just um, to mention, and you can sum it up, Keane, I don't think it it needs much um, rubber stamping from our point of view, but Eamon Sweeney has disgusted as everybody was when they saw the abuse which was levelled at a nine-year-old battling cancer. Yeah, um, like you said, it's not a whole pile that needs to be said out of it, but I thought it was it was good to see, I suppose, Eamon Sweeney bringing her up um, because, yeah, like when you heard about it on Friday night, it was just absolutely horrific. Um, like, you know, myself and Shane were talking about it outside as well, but you know, I do think it was good to see it and the headline kind of says it all. Whoever you follow, we all need to be on Team Bradley. Um, 
and look, I suppose for anyone who doesn't know, Stephen Bradley, Shamrock Rovers manager, uh, his son Josh has been battling leukemia. Um, and I thought Eamon Sweeney summed it up well here when he said, and sorry, obviously you've got Stephen Bradley came in for some abuse by, I don't even want to use the term supporters, Cork City supporters, because I just don't really think any, like any decent human being would do that, let alone associate someone with the club. But um, anyway, on, on Friday night, wasn't it, after the game, there was a bit of um, abuse. So Eamon Sweeney says... Um, when young Josh helped his father lift the League of Ireland trophy, it was one of the emotional highlights of the sporting year. That was Irish sport at its finest. Friday night saw it at its worst. Stephen Bradley must have felt like he'd been kicked in the teeth. I think that kind of sums it up um, pretty well. Just absolutely horrific. Um, I just don't know what would bring someone to, to do something like that. But I just thought it was a strong piece by Eamon Sweeney. And it was, we all know there's no place for it in society, but it was, it needed to be, clearly it needed to be mentioned because it happened, you know. It was the absolute lowest of the lowest, Joe. It really, really was. Um, I would have no great fondness broadly overall for, for Shamrock Rovers, but I was I was in Tala when they lifted the trophy at the end of the year. Um, it is not true of fondness for Shamrock Rovers or Stephen Bradley that I would have had a frog in my throat, but, but seeing the young fellow out on the pitch lifting it, I was... Oh, turned me to jelly, so it did. Um, yeah, look, I would commend, I would say, I would commend those around the incident. Cork City were extremely quick to publish a reaction completely condemning those that were involved. Um, it appears that they now have been identified or pretty much close to being officially identified. They will, I think, get lifetime bans, I think. So for those who know the setup of Turner's Cross, there's a pub on the corner where you can be in the beer garden in the pub and be able to see down into the, into the pitch. That appears to be where the remarks came from. I think the pub itself played a significant role in identifying who the people involved were. So fair play to them for not being, you know, um, making an ill-judged decision to try and protect their patrons or anything like that. Um, so, you know, well done to reaction to those around it is the one thing I'd say on it, you know. Fellas, thank you very much. We are uh, done there. Shane Keegan, Cove Rollers manager. And I keep saying Cove Rollers instead it's kind of Rambers. a combination of Rovers and Cove Rollers manager, it? Shane Keegan and Keen <laughs> Tracy, the Irish Independent. Thank you both, fellas. Appreciate it. Back in one second.